I really believe freelancing is something that everybody can do. It's not just something that you do because you're between jobs. It's a valuable and empowering way of having a career and running your life. My book is all about empowering people and inspiring them to take that step and giving them the tools to achieve it. I believe that everyone can be a great freelancer. You just need to have the tools and I believe I've written those down so you can do that yourself. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is an award-winning entrepreneur and freelancer who is skilled at transforming creative concepts into business reality. She accomplishes this through various mediums, including films, mentorship, and the written word. During her career, she's produced over 7,000 minutes of film and television and has worked on everything from documentaries to feature films. She's been a professional freelancer all her career who fully understands that you want to make your career work for you on your terms and determined by your own definition of success. She's consolidated her experience and expertise into a guidebook, which talks you through absolutely everything that you need to know to start your successful self-employed life. Her book helps up and coming freelancers get their bearings straight from day one, helping you develop your personal brand, pick up financial essentials, grow your client base, manage your work life balance, negotiate deals, and value your time and become more adapt. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Penguin bestselling book, The Freelance Bible, Allison Grade. Allison, thank you so much for taking time at your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you coming by the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Really nice to chat to you. Looking forward to it. So talk to us about your journey. How'd you get to where you are today? What were some of the struggles that you had to face along the way and how did you overcome them? Cool. So I did my university in England. I was lucky enough to get into Cambridge University. I got in to be a scientist, actually. I did maths, physics, chemistry at A-level, got into science and got into doing natural sciences. And then over that summer period, my boyfriend at the time, he's like, oh, I'm at NYU. I'm doing film studies. It's so cool. You know, do something more progressive. So I ended up changing to social and political sciences in my first year because I was really interested in psychology anyway. And they both offered it, one from a science based background and one from a social background so I was like okay I'll do social and political sciences and that led me on to management studies in my final year so it was always around business for me but it wasn't traditional business I knew I'd grown up in a quite a media-based family and I went in and I looked at all the jobs on offer and all the companies and, and I ran out again because it was just I didn't identify with it and I was like well I'm just gonna give it a try in the media industry see what happens and kind of still here I am doing having reinvented myself in 
in so many different ways as a freelancer, but maybe it's more iterated than reinvented. So yeah, that's why I wrote the book because nobody gave me a guidebook. Nobody teaches it. So I'm like, well, I actually know about this. I'm going to write it down. I love it. I'd love to get into it, but the freelance Bible. So before we do that, I'm I'm curious, what are some of the documentaries or feature films that you've worked on that perhaps our audience might have heard of? It's been very, very UK specific. Most recently, I've been doing live to cinemas and online for theatrical productions. So the most fun one, the really big one, you'll know the show is Rocky Horror Show. It was the 40th anniversary and they did an all-star one-night celebrity production and they got some of the original people back in to play different roles and we had all these different guest stars and we went live to, I think it was 600 cinemas across Europe. So that was pretty cool cool but then otherwise i just did very you know much mainly uk type productions um factual entertainment entertainment so people work with people like des o'connor it's a knockout but not the really early one the the later one that came back with frank bruno remember the boxer he was in it um he was like the umpire school guy so yeah probably not so much that's really hit canada <laughs> right yeah i'll definitely include some of that stuff into the show notes and uh, give our audience an opportunity to check that stuff out i'm like I'm interested to see how the future of theater going, movie going, and film in general will be affected by our, you know, global pandemic situation. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out in the future. I'm looking forward to just being able to watch feature films at home, just kind of rent them through <laughs> through some app and watch them at home. But do you have any thoughts around that uh, as to how things might be affected? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work on this at the moment. I mean, I think it's very, very different for film and TV compared to theatres and festivals. And, you know, it's the the big divide is those that are reliant on ticket sales to the public and those that aren't. So film and TV, which is not reliant on that, you know, I think actually in the UK, we're quite ahead of the curve. Things are starting to open up. The soap operas are happening. I know, you know, I've got pitches in with the BBC at the moment that we're waiting to hear on because they can see the black holes and particularly the linear channels can see the black holes in the schedules and even when you look at Netflix I'm like it's like how many times can I look at the same things we're all looking for new fresh content so film and TV is absolutely coming down the line and I think it will open up quickly the the theatres that is really worrying because it absolutely is about having people in confined spaces for long periods of time and you know confined spaces lack of ventilation long periods of time that's absolutely right breeding ground for coronavirus so, you know, that's going to be challenging. So so we'll see. It, it's too early to tell for some of them, but I'm confident for film and TV at the moment. Awesome. Thank you for your insight onto that. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get into your book, The Freelance Bible. Let's start with a question that's pretty kind of high level in general, but I think it's really important. What does being a freelancer mean? I think for me, the key thing about being a freelancer is that, you know, you are in charge of your destiny. You're not waiting for someone to say, please do this. You know, you're not waiting for your boss to say, this is the next thing I want you to do. You've got to find your own work to do. And what comes with that is you're expected to have your own tools of the trade. So just like, you know, if you need a plumber to come around to your house, they don't arrive and go, so where are all the plumbing tools? You You buy them in because they have those tools. So, you know, the thing about being a freelancer is you are there, you're selling yourself, you're selling your services. But with that comes huge autonomy because you can work where you like, when you like. I mean, 
within reason your clients are going to have deadlines and stuff but for me I'm quite an early bird you know I'll often start at half five six o'clock in the morning and do two or three hours work before I worry about giving the kids breakfast well particularly at the moment because I don't have to do school runs so you know I can get a big chunk of work in which allows me to have time with the kids then go back to work and so I can just structure my day to work when my brain actually wants to work rather than when the company says my brain should be working and, and that allows me to be most productive. Yeah, I like that a lot. Just being able to set your own schedule and, and do stuff at your own pace. And much like you, I'm quite an early bird as well. So I do a lot of my podcast work um, like between 4.30 a.m. to like 8 a.m. <laughs> Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. I was wondering if we could kind of get into how we can identify as freelancers. You talk about I-shaped people and T-shaped people in your book. I was wondering if you could touch on that and uh, maybe touch on how we can find our identity as a freelancer. Yeah, absolutely. I think most people are familiar with the I-shaped person as a freelancer. And an I-shaped person is somebody who has a huge depth of knowledge. They've got a huge depth of knowledge in their field. And that's the very traditional model of freelancing. People who are hired for very high level specialist skills. So, you know, you see that, you know, film industry is a very good example. You know, your director of photography, your art director, you know, your producer, your director, less so the producer will come on to them in a minute. But those people that are very I shaped that you hire them for small periods of time to deliver at a very high level. And that's been traditional freelancing. But I think increasingly T-shaped people are freelancers and T-shaped people who are people who've got a good depth of knowledge, but they've got this kind of T across the top, which is their breadth of collaboration. And it's their ability to enable teams to function, to bring people together. So as a production manager in TV, which was the role I did, I had to talk to every department. I had to make sure everyone got to the right place at the right time and not spend too much money. So I had to know lots about different departments. So I had to be able to have an informed conversation with the camera team, post-production, lighting, art pump. But I didn't actually have to be able to pick up the camera and use it. So that's what the producers do as well. So that T-shaped person is that translator, that enabler. And yeah, it was really interesting. A friend of mine who's not necessarily like the person who you would really think would be a brilliant freelancer, he wrote me a text when he'd like got to the T-shape in, in the book and he went, Oh my God, you've just changed my life. He said, I just always tried to be an I-shaped person and I just didn't fit. And now you've just given me permission to be a T-shaped person and I get it. And it's understanding the value that we bring. And I don't bring I-shaped values. I bring that translator and that enabler. And that is a freelance skill very much these days. Yeah, I think a lot of people in my audience, the data scientists, might be able to relate with the analogy of specialist versus generalist. Whereas, you know, if you're a data scientist and you specialize heavily in like natural language processing, that would be kind of your eye shape, right? You'd be heavily focused on natural language processing. Whereas if you're kind of a jack of all trades, data scientist, you're a generalist, that's that T-shape. Uh, you know a little bit of everything and you can kind of draw on all those experiences to solve whatever problem you have. Another analogy I think would be the foxes or rather the hedgehogs versus the foxes concept. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but yeah, that's uh, very interesting. I really enjoy that you kind of define those and broke that down. So you've got 
a three C's analysis in your book that can help us become better freelancers. I was wondering if we can touch on that. You can maybe walk us through that at a high level. Oh, absolutely. So the three C's comes from, you know, doing my MBA at NCAD and doing, you know, the marketing strategy and the marketing planning. And that's the basis of your marketing plan and your marketing research, that three C's. So it's customers, company and competition. So if we start with company, that's you as a freelancer, that's your skills, that's what you bring to the table. So you can kind of do that SWOT analysis of, you know, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And I do a lot of work in the skills order in the book where you can really drill into that and there's an exercise about that. And then you can look at that and go, well, what are the opportunities for some of my skills? What are the threats to it? So you can do a really good piece of research around what do I have to offer as a freelancer? So that's your company. Then you can start looking at your customers. Who are they? Who are they at the moment? Who do you want them to be? You know, where are they based? What sectors are they in? What do they want from you? Are they big companies? Are they small companies? You know, what, what do they value? What do they care about? You can really start to literally draw a picture of who these customers are. And you might find they're in different groups and you've got more than one type of customer. And then the competition's really important because we've got to know who's who's after that pot of money that we're after. Who, who are we up against? And you've got two types of competition. You've got that direct competition. So that might be like, as you say, the data, your data scientist and you're up against other colleagues who you know who are in the same field. So that's your direct competition. But they can also be collaborative partners. It might be that actually you work together and you put in a joint pitch to deliver something because actually between the two of you, you can pitch for something bigger that you might not be able to do. Equally, you know, in TV production, there are some projects that I work on where, you know, I need one camera operator, but there are others when I need six or seven. So they've got to work together as a team as well as operating solo. So your com competition can also be collaboration. But as well as that direct competition, it's really important to understand who the indirect competition is. So who's your indirect competition? And what I mean by that is people who are pitching for the same pot of money, but actually what they're offering to deliver is something different. So I talk in my book about a company that I ran a few years ago, which was Girls Angels, and we specialized in teaching women how to ride motorbikes. And yes, we had direct competition there. We had other motorbike training schools, but really we were less in competition with them than we were for the customer's disposable income because they didn't need to get a bike license. They wanted to get a bike license. So actually we were up against a holiday, a new outfit, a night out, a different type of course. So we had to sell them the dream, you know, Roman holiday dream, girl on a motorcycle, freedom, all of that kind of stuff. We had to sell them the big dream that they were going to have more fun with us than the other things they could spend their money on. So understanding who that indirect competition is, and I'm sure in your field as well, you're often competing for research funds and that kind of thing whereby you it will be different projects that are getting funded so not only have you got to prove your projects right you've got to prove it's the most valuable the most interesting the most impactful whatever it might be so that's your kind of three c's analysis and that really gets you starting to think about who am i what am i trying to do where what can i offer the marketplace then once we're out there, once we've done this analysis for ourselves, we kind of understand our position in the marketplace. What can we do to make sure that we're pricing our services adequately? Yeah, pricing, I get, I talk about an awful lot with people because it's really, really hard. I mean, first of all, we've got to, you've got to do your basic numbers and do your spreadsheet and know that what is actually going out every week or every month and what you need to earn after your taxes. So you've got to do that as your baseline. And that's like, that's like your baseline sales projections for the year. But 
what's going you've got to remember that what's going out of your pocket in your personal income is post-tax so as a freelancer i get paid including all my tax and in the uk it's national insurance so i have to put some of that aside so whatever you calculate for your personal expenditure you've got to add back in the taxes that you might be collecting that you then have paid to the government so just just to remember not to forget that bit so then you've got a base level of what you need to earn so from that you can start looking at it and slicing and dicing it in different ways you can look at well okay if i've got a sense of what my daily or weekly rate should be i can just work out then how many days in the year i need to work to Earn that, and if that's you know, I always look for about to try and break even at around 120, maxing out at about 150 work days per year. Because I've got as a freelancer, I've still got to go out and work. I've got still got to go out and find the clients. I've got to find the business. I've got to do the admin. I've got to do the financial paperwork. I've got lots of other stuff that I need to do. So I can't plan to be working 365 days a year. Or say you go 47, 48 weeks, you got four or five weeks holiday a year. You know, I still can't be planning to getting paid work all of those days so I tend to work on about as I say 120 to 150 days a year so if I look at what I need to earn I can divide that by 120 150 that starts to give me a sense of a daily rate so then I'm getting some more information and then I can do some benchmarking and I can look at you know what jobs are being advertised what freelance call outs there are what other projects are going on I can start baselining against those again if I see a permanent job I'm kind of going well that's one salary level but actually it's going to cost that company another well, certainly about 25% by the, play, by the time they've given them a desk, a computer, paid the extra employer's taxes and stuff. So bearing in mind that, so I can benchmark, I can talk to people, I can ask people in my network, I can use mentors and stuff, what do you think it's worth? And so we're starting to build up a picture of what the value is. And you can look at, well, where am I deploying my skills? If I'm teaching how to be a great filmmaker, that's one type of rate. If I'm doing it, if I'm being a filmmaker, that's a different rate. But it's a different rate on a small project to a big project. So I've got to look at the context around that and the audience as well. If I'm working for a company and it's developing an idea that's speculative, I might do a deal that's lower priced but gets me on the list for when it comes off. So I'm starting to do a whole mixture of research to start looking at what sort of price might I charge. But at the same time, I always take a step back because we can get very stuck focusing on that. And it's a really important exercise. But I take that step back and I think, well, actually, what is the value to my client of what I'm doing? If I'm going to increase sales by 20% through what I'm doing, I'm worth an awful lot. I'm going to increase sales by a 100%. I'm worth even more. If I'm going to save them loads of money on the bottom line, I'm worth a lot. So I've got to put that into the context of the value that I'm delivering for the client. Why are they coming to me? What problem or need am I solving for them by the work that I do? And that starts to unlock a different value and pricing conversation. But I still need to know my baselines before I go into those conversations. I like that approach pricing yourself based on the value that you're contributing. It reminds me of this, I forgot where I read it, but you know, there's a building that had this crazy leak going on, nonstop leak or whatever. And the owner of the building called a plumber and the plumber charged him $500 to change one washer. You know, the washer costs like 50 cents or something, but knowing which washer to change or which screw to screw in, 
that's that value-based knowledge that you need to build into your price, right? All that experience and expertise you have. Another question kind of, I think you might've covered it with your previous answer, but I think let's take, for example, a case study. I have a cousin who is a technical writer who's doing freelancing work on the side, um, kind of in adjacent spaces, uh, such as blog post writing and writing other technical documents. And he's setting as his baseline, the hourly rate that he makes at work. Do you think that would be a reasonable place to start as a baseline? Or do you want to, as you know, if you're doing freelancing on the side, you want to price yourself higher than that yeah but it's client and sector specific it's it's Mm -hmm. about that value that you're adding so if you've got a real depth of tech if you go back to that eye shape thing if you've got a real depth of knowledge it's understanding the value of that so if he can communicate that technical knowledge in a way that other people can't then you can really start to leverage that and build on that value i think the classic question i would be asking is how busy are you if you've got work coming out of your ears, the general rule is you're not charging enough because everyone's after you because you're good value. So what happens? Well, you put your prices up. Okay, so you lose a couple of people along the way, but you're earning more and you're doing less. You're kind of winning. So it goes back to the economics of supply and demand, basically. So, you know, it's about, you know, when you're starting out, you are going to have a lower rate. But as you start to get busier, that's when you start to put your prices up and you're just balancing that equity. Um, and, and it's not easy and it's hard to say no and it's hard to put your prices up but actually when you become stupid busy is when you go okay no you need to churn a few clients or get the prices up thank you for that so is there ever a situation where we should work for free and if so how can we flip that to become a positive for us So I think that's a really interesting question. And I think I always start by asking what's in it for me to do this for nothing. So I would only do something for nothing if it was um, delivering value for me. So there's different scenarios where I might do that. You know, as an experienced practitioner, I will do work for free rather than say give to a local charity. I would rather use some of my expertise to support their activities and give them cash because I feel I can make a better contribution that way. So I might help them with their marketing campaign or something like that, something practical that I can help them with that has much more value than me writing them a check for $50 or something. So at that point, but those are what I call my hobby clients. Those are people that I deliver my skills to, but I don't have any reason to get any financial reward from. So that's one way that I will work for free. But the other side of that is either when you're starting out or when you're experienced, but you're trying to work in a new sector, that's about that portfolio building. But you've got to understand what you're doing it for and why. And, you know, there's a lot of backlash in creative industries about people working for nothing. And you've really got to understand what you're getting out of it. Because if you go and you make a film for somebody that's a pitch film, but you can never show it on your website, never talk about it or anything else, then really, why are you doing it for free? Why are you getting involved? Because you can't talk about it. You can't show it to anyone. You've got nothing to say for it. And those people, they're not that well connected. They're not going to introduce you to anyone. So if I was starting out as a filmmaker and someone wanted me to work for nothing, I'd be like, well, okay, what's your track record? Why are you doing projects that are free? You know, who do you know who's really professionally working in the industry? Who, you know, is this your hobby project? And therefore you can introduce me to some great people. Or are you someone that just takes lots of people for free and then they go and find other people? So you've just got to work out that cost benefit analysis of why you would do it for you. But I, I wouldn't take on work for free without doing that myself for any piece of work um the times when i've broken my own rule it's always been a pain in the ass because they don't value me 
they don't engage with the project properly you get taken advantage of so you absolutely got to set it up well I like that advice. It's really good. That's better than the advice that I'd given to my cousin because I told him he was in a situation where people weren't giving him business because he didn't have a portfolio that he could share with them. So the advice I'd given him was, okay, we'll take on one or two projects for free with the caveat that this project, after redacting any confidential information, will be used as part of my portfolio in lieu of payment. However, if you think the work I did was good, then you could pay me at this rate. That's the advice I gave to him, which I think I might have to take back now. <laughs> so It's all about the portfolio. No, it's absolutely, it's about the portfolio, but you've got to know when to stop and you've got to start asking for money if you're delivering for people and leveraging those networks that you've got to get introduced to more work and to more opportunities. So I'm always keen, you know, get new introductions. That's what I'm always looking for is the next lead and the next lead and the next lead to get that paid piece of work. So now that we've established how to find our clients, you know, we do the 3C analysis, we kind of understand how we're going to price ourselves. And now we're in the situation where we've got us a piece of work. And, you know, while we're working with clients, there's inevitably going to be meetings and there's going to be kind of those fact-finding missions. How can we make sure that we're getting the most out of our client meetings? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So certainly in the early days at the start of a project or when you're pitching to a client, you know, you've got to have your pitch ready. You've got to be able to explain why you can add value. What is it that you're going to do? Why should they hire you rather than your direct or indirect competition? And that's all about winning the hearts and minds, why you're the best, why you can solve their problems better, faster, whatever it is. It's never cheaper. It's never cheaper. Freelancers are luxury items that, you know, we are are highly skilled, highly trained people, and we deliver high quality services. So it's never cheaper for me anyway. So, but we've also got to know when to shut up and listen and listen to the needs of our clients because I solve customers' problems. I don't, I don't turn up with a suitcase going, here are all my services, which one would you like? I'm listening. I'm listening for those opportunities. Where can I add value? How can I do my magic? So that's very much what I'm always trying to do is to listen and really build that relationship with the client. I liken um, freelancing to dating, you know, because it really is those first meetings are like those early dates where you're really looking, do we share each other's values? Do we have stuff in common? Can we work together? All of those things and really building up that relationship, that courtship, you know, I'm really trying to sell them a little something to get started. Let's, let's, let's do a little project together. Let's see if we like working together. And then as I do that little project and I get to know them, I'm like, oh, you know, we could do this next. Oh, you know, we could do that next. And I start to build that and I can get a run of quite a number of years working with a client at different state at different times to suit their, their workflow. So that's what I'm always looking to do is listen and really build a good relationship with that client. And once we've got that relationship built with the client, sometimes we can fall into the trap of over-delivering on expectations or maybe not clearly understanding what we need to get done for them. Can you share some pointers on how we can clearly identify the problem that our client is trying to solve uh, so that we don't waste our time delivering on something that is completely not what was expected? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because lots of freelancers think that they're adding value to a client by over-delivering. And that's actually like part of their USP. I always do a bit more for my client. You know, they love it. And I'm like, no, no, stop, stop. Don't over-deliver. I, you know, maybe it's because I'm a control freak, but I really believe in the freelancer really owning the project because there's two reasons in my head why a company will hire a freelancer. They either hire a freelancer because they've got specialist skills that that company doesn't have in-house and they need or they hire a freelancer because they need extra capacity. So if I'm the freelancer and I've got those high skills, my client's not going to be able to write the brief and the proposal because they don't understand what I can deliver. So I need to write that proposal. If I'm adding capacity, they've probably got come to me because they haven't got enough time to do it. So they're never going to write the proposal. So I will always own that. What is the brief? What is the proposal? I will send that to the client. And that does a couple of things. It allows me to keep control of the conversation, but also it it allows me to set out what are the assumptions, what's the work going to be done, when's it going to happen by and all of that and what the deliverables are. So at that point, and I put a price on it. So my client signs up to that. That's great. Okay, so the project changes. Oh, hang on a minute, client. The project's changed slightly from this brief that you signed off that I wrote. Do you want me to do this instead of this bit or as well as this bit? Oh, instead of, okay, so can we just agree that I won't do that bit and it'll be the same price or on top of, right, well, I'll quote you for that and it'll be this. So then you're owning the conversation. You've got a clear set of ground rules from the start. So that whole project creep, project change, you can step away from and there's a place to have the conversation. Thank you for that. So where do you see the future of freelancing headed in the next two to five years? I think certainly with where we're at at the moment with coronavirus and real uncertainty in the economy, I think we're going to see huge numbers of freelancing opportunities. You know, it's sad to say, but I think there's going to be an awful lot of redundancies coming up um, because there will be sectors that just aren't in a position to keep going in the same way. And unlike a more traditional recession, it will hit what it will hit an industry or a sector. So people will have to find new ways to redeploy their skills and then other companies will be busy but they'll be terrified that something's going to hit again they'll be hiring freezes but they'll have busy periods so they'll need freelancers so I think the opportunities for freelancers are going to increase massively post-COVID just because of the way as the economy opens up again people will be more risk of us in terms of taking people on and there'll be a lot of people out there in the marketplace and there won't be as many jobs so that naturally starts to go well can I find a little bit of gig work here and there can I be a freelancer can I be a consultant so you will be looking for enterprising ways to earn a living that you know that aren't a sort of especially if they're experienced professionals they're not going to be looking to do those minimum wage jobs that might be on offer and how do you think technology will impact freelancers in the next two to five years Oh, I think it's really exciting because I'm already seeing clients talking to me who would never have approached me in the past. So, you know, in the UK, you know, I do lots of webinars for universities now, whereas before they'd have always expected me to turn up in person. They wouldn't have the infrastructure capability. So, you know, Plymouth, it's probably not far in Canadian terms, but it's a long way from Birmingham where I am. You know, it's right down the far southwest of the country. You know, I did a webinar with them. I don't think they'd have reached out to me and said, oh, can you come to Plymouth? I'd be like, 
like, well, I need to stay in a hotel and da da da, and it's going to cost you this. They were like, can we just buy an hour of your time? I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic. And I think I'm going to see way more of that happening, you know, around the world. Just like, you know, we're we're chatting here now. We found a good time that worked for both of us. You know, that side of work's really exciting. So, you know, the client base that I would traditionally look at has completely changed who I'm looking at talking to and who I'm looking at working with. So that's the real positive. The flip side of that is my competition has completely changed because actually I'm competing with people across the globe as well now. So it massively enhances opportunities. But at the same time, there's way more people who could be working with the clients that I'm already working with. So as a successful entrepreneur yourself, what do you think are some key traits that you think someone who wants to become a full-fledged entrepreneur should be cultivating within themselves? You've got to be self-motivated. You've got to just get out of bed and want to get on with it. If you're waiting for someone to tell you what to do, you need to think about how do you change that? Because either it's really not suited to you or what you're looking at doing is just not motivating you. You, you know, you've got to you've got to have fire in the belly for it and you've got to want to do it. And you've got, you know, I talk in the book about the successful freelancer psyche in it. It's this freelancer who sat on top of this three-legged stool and the, the three legs of the stool are are all equal lengths and, and one is about finances and financial drive and one leg is about your skills and one leg is about your desires and you've got to have those three legs bearing equal weight because if you take away financial drive from that model you've got skills you've got desires but you've got a hobby you haven't got a career you have you're not going to pay the mortgage you're not going to pay the bills if you take away skills you've got no substance behind what you do and if you take away desires you're just not able to do the marketing and communicate it you're sitting there with like well I want to earn the money um, and I've got the skills but you're just not able to communicate it so I think whether it's an entrepreneur whether it's a freelancer those three are the absolute pillars and the building blocks of driving that forwards but you've just got to be someone who gets gets on with it What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free open mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. So is there a difference between freelancing and entrepreneurship or can those terms be used a bit interchangeably? People do use them interchangeably. I think for me, a freelancer is somebody who sells their services. As a freelancers aren't looking to grow, to hire loads of people, to get investment. It's about selling your services and it's about the autonomy and the work-life balance and being valued at what you do, loving all your projects. An entrepreneur is much more around, I want to build a business. I want to sell products. I might want to get investment. I want to build a team. So entrepreneurs are much more focused on that scaling up side of things I think I mean that's the difference I see and and freelancers can start as freelancers and go actually I've got a business in that I'm gonna scale it and 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 but really freelancers for me are people who sell their services to other companies rather than your designer maker who's got an Etsy shop and is selling product I'd see that more as an entrepreneur as a business so you mentioned some of the similarities between 
freelancers and entrepreneurs. Uh, you talk about it in your book as well, that three elements of the successful freelance psyche, which you mentioned, they're like three legs of a stool. But what would you say is the difference between the freelancer mindset and the entrepreneur mindset, having been on both kind of sides of the field? I think it's the growth and uh, the entrepreneur is always on building that team, scaling that business, taking it to that next stage. There's a there's a big hurry around that. The freelancer side of things for me is, is about flexibility, autonomy and freedom. It's about a work-life balance. The entrepreneur for me as someone who's got their head down, they're absolutely on a mission to make that thing happen. And that's not that I don't do that as a freelancer, but I'm not trying to grow and scale a business I'm not trying to build a team I'm trying to pay my bills for me and work how I want to work so I think that's the difference for me and that sort of mindset but you know it is a bit blurry and I think particularly freelancers selling services and quite often entrepreneurs build businesses that sell products so for me freelancers very much sell sell their services Thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed that kind of compare and contrast you did for us. So you talk about building a personal brand in your book, which I'm a huge proponent of. I think that's awesome. I think everybody should build a personal brand. But what's the importance of building a personal brand as a freelancer? And how can someone build a personal brand for themselves? I think you have to take a step back and think about how we relate to brands as consumers because we're all really, really sophisticated consumers of brands. You know, we can go down the high street, we can go on the internet and we've got we've got opinions about every brand that we've ever come in contact with. We love it, we hate it, it's good value, it's high quality, it's beautiful, it's functional. You can come up with any adjective you can think of to describe different brands and how you feel about them. So, you know, as a consumer, I'm extremely sophisticated at forming very quick opinions on brands. So I have to remember that as a freelancer because I'm setting out there, I'm selling, my, setting out my stall to sell my services and people will see me as a brand and they will judge me in the same way that I judge all the brands that I do in everyday life. So that's why that brand is so important. And I think as a freelancer, there's kind of three key parts to it. I've got to look at, well, what are the values that I admire in the brands that I like? And what 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 values values do I admire in brands? So I can start to look at those those kind of words. That's that's what I like. I can start to think about, well, what are the values that are important to me as a human being? And then I can look at, well, what are the values that I think a professional freelancer should adopt? And from that, I can get a whole list of different brand values. And I try and drill those down to about half a dozen core brand value words that really say what I'm all about as a brand. And from that, I can then start to distill very consistent messaging across my social media, across my website, across my proposals, my presentations, all of my client interactions can then be focused around those half a dozen core brand value words. But, you know, people will see us as brands. So let's understand that, embrace that and use that to our advantage to present ourselves to the world. So speaking of social media and presenting ourselves to the world, well, talk to us a bit about Dunbar's number and how that plays into being a freelancer. Yeah, so Robin Dunbar's an anthropologist and he proposes that most of us can maintain around 150 people in our networks who, and he says that we would recognize instantly in any situation and if we bumped into them in a bar, it would be no problem just to sit down unannounced and have a chat. So if I've got 150 people in my network and you've got 150 people in your network, that means that at one step removed, there's 22,500 people in my network. 
works. So all of my 150 and all of their 150, so 150 times 150, 22,500 people who I'm one step removed from. So when I'm thinking about my networks, I'm realizing that I can actually reach out very quickly to a really large number of people if I start to think about them as, you know, not everybody's going to be somebody who can offer me work directly. But, you know, you might have a local university by you that you know. I say, oh, it'd be brilliant. Alison was a great guest on the podcast. You know, connect me up to your university and I'll do my talk about how to be a great freelancer. So I'm leveraging my network. Who do you know? So how does that work? So you you can introduce me to people. And so it goes on. So then they then, I meet them. We have a conversation. I do a great thing. And they say, oh, you should get Alison. And so suddenly my network's growing. But I've actually got to, you know, I've got to take the time to sit down and write down that list of who are these 150 people. And they're in my phone numbers, contact list. They're on my Facebook. They're on my LinkedIn. They're on my Instagram. I can pull that list together and I can write to them and say, hey, can we have a conversation? You know, we know each other. I'm doing this. People are buying me because of this. You know, who do you think might be interested? You know, and if they're good, close colleagues, friends, they'll have that conversation with you and then you get a lead and then you get a lead and you just keep following it up. So I really like that response. That's very insightful. And I want to kind of think about how we can leverage networking events. So networking events are a huge part of a data scientist as they're starting out their career. You know, there's career fairs that they go to on university campuses. There's recruiting events that they go to. And I think some of the things you talk about in your book about how we can leverage networking events to our advantages will really apply to this group of people in my audience. So how can we do that? How can we leverage networking events without coming off as here's my resume, please hire me. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think I'm pleased you frame that with people starting out because I think there's different approaches at different stages in your career. I think when you're starting out, you need to do lots and lots of research before the event. You know, who's signed up to it? Who can you find, you know, who's signed up to it? What's it all about? You know, because networking events fall into two parts. You've got the content, it's like a conference. There's the meaty conference, the conversation piece, and then there's the bits in between. If you're starting out, you know, one of the great things to do is get involved with being an organizer if you're trying to get in there particularly if it might cost you to go to the event if you can volunteer and do the registration desk you get to meet everybody you get to give them their badges you get to say hey welcome thank you very much and when it's somebody who you've identified that you really 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 want to talk to you go oh i'm so pleased you're here you know could i have five minutes later on could could i come and find you later on i've got a question i'd really like to ask you i love your work whatever it might be yeah obviously you can't stop being on the registration desk and kind of pitch to them but you know getting on the registration desk that starts getting you networked getting you knowing who's who so that's a really good start but then when you're in the panel in the conference you know ask you know, prepare some questions that you want to ask stand up ask those questions say who you are say why you're there get on the mic and raise your profile because actually if you're starting out and you ask a good question people will be like wow who's that person that was a really cool question and then you know then when you go into the breaks people will be like hey that was a good question or whatever you or you can go up to a group of people and sort of you know may i join you may i join you it's a really powerful statement just go up to a group of people it always looks like everybody knows everybody but most of the time we're all hiding next to the person that we've just happened to get a cup of tea with and we're chatting to them because we really can't be we just got to steal ourselves to go and talk to lots of people so may i join you join the conversation and if you've just stood up and asked a question and they've been in the session they'll be like hey that was a good question what motivated you or what did you think of so-and-so's response so you've already got the conversation going but you know you've just got to work the room get into the conversation ascertain who you're talking to have you got a point of have you got a point where there's something mutually 
interesting to talk about. If not, get out of the conversation as quickly as you can and move on to the next group of people. Oh, sorry, my phone's going. Oh, sorry, got to go now, whatever. Could I have a card? Here's a card. Off you go. But it's all conferences and networking events as a numbers game. Do your research, find the people you want to talk to, but you've got to talk to lots and lots of people and then you've got to follow up with them afterwards and have something interesting to say. Thank you for that. I know that our audience is really going to benefit from that. I was wondering if you could speak to your experience being a woman entrepreneur and freelancer and if you have any words of encouragement for the women in our audience who are breaking into or are currently in this world that you uh, that you talk about in Freelance Bible. Yeah, that, that question, I do. I looked at it when you sent the thing over and I'm like, I do resonate with it, but I don't because I just get on and I do my thing. And I guess the best place for me to talk to that from is when I was running Girls Angels because I was a woman running a motorbike training school. And I can imagine like women in data science is probably not huge numbers. So, you know, you can actually create quite a profile and a brand quite well if you market yourself cleverly. So when we ran Girls Angels, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, I'm sure it's relatively similar, but when you do motorbike training, everyone's got to wear like the fluorescent bib over their clothes so you can see that they're having a lesson and it's got to have the company's phone number on and this sort of thing. So the tradition in the UK is that everyone wears these bright yellow ones and, and our branding was all pink because we were girls' angels and everything. So I asked if I, I asked the authorities if I was allowed to wear fluorescent pink ones and they couldn't come up with a reason not to because they were fluorescent, which was the rules and reflective and everything else. So suddenly we appeared on the scene you know, we were really bold and really loud and we were bright pink. So everyone knew that it was our company. So I think that side of things of owning it and being just, even if you're not feeling confident inside, you know, owning it in the moment and really going for it and holding your own is really important. You know, we've all gone into the bathroom and gone, oh my God, what's going on? I'm sure you guys do it. You just don't talk about it. You do it differently. But, you know, you've got to hold it together and, you know, own what you can do and challenge it and you know don't don't let the mansplaining take over Thank you for that. So I was wondering, actually, just one last formal question before we jump into the lightning round. And that is, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? For me, I really believe freelancing is something that everybody can do. It's not just something that you do because you're between jobs. It's a valuable and empowering way of having a career and running your life, whether that's family, traveling, whatever you choose it to be. So um, my book is all about empowering people and inspiring them to take that step and giving them the tools to achieve it. So I believe that everyone can be a great freelancer. You just need to have the tools. And I believe I've written those down. So you can do that yourself. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that and I encourage everyone to check out your book. We'll have it linked in the show notes. It was really insightful and really does. It's the blueprint, for lack of a better word. It, it is the blueprint. So jumping into a quick lightning round here, if you could put up a billboard anywhere in the world, what would it say and why? Okay, my billboard would say make work work for you because I think that's at the heart of freelancing. Um, I make my work work for me. You know, what you don't know is that five minutes before I signed on for the podcast, I was downstairs helping my son ice the cake for his um, school art project because obviously the kids are at home at the moment. But, I, you know, I'm rushing up and down the stairs between Zooms and schooling and everything else and I'm making work work for me at the moment in different ways. What's something you believe that other people think is crazy? 
Okay, so I just think you have to get things done straight away. Like someone asks you to do that, right, I'll do it now. Yeah, and I think other people think I'm mad and I'm like hyperactive because some people go, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then I look and like three hours later, they start done it. I'm like, but you said you were going to do it. Why haven't you done it yet? I'd have done it hours ago. That's that one. So what's the most bizarre aspect or quality of human nature? Yeah, I I spent a lot of time thinking about this one because I wanted to get something that was really true to me. And I think it was like the cognitive distortions that we construct our reality and write our own narrative. And we really selectively interpret and process information according to our own core beliefs and perceptions. And I'm sure that's something that you look at a lot in data science, but it's just like, you know, why is it that we just construct these narratives and stories around us that are debilitating they take us backwards they harm our prospect but we can't unpick them so i think that that for me is really bizarre so what's an academic topic or area of research outside of data science that you think data scientists should spend some time researching up on So it has to be marketing and communications for me every time because you can have the best thing that you do in the entire world. It can be absolutely brilliant. If you can't communicate to somebody why they should care about it, why they need it, why they should value it, you're just not going to get it over the line. So absolutely marketing away. What's the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or both that you'd recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Okay, so I read that as a factual book. So the notes that I made on that were, well, from my early days when I started out with Girls Angels, it was absolutely the beer mat entrepreneur written by my mentor, Mike Southern, which was all about just getting on with it, beta testing things, trying things out. It was before you really called it beta testing, but it's like, let's see how we can do this really quickly, test it out and build it up from there rather than like, oh, I need to build this big thing. I need this investment. So absolutely the beer mat entrepreneur, that really helped help shape me get girls angels underway recently i've loved start with why by simon sinek because i'm absolutely a why 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 person i've just finished positive intelligence which is all about those cognitive distortions and that kind of thing and that's been really insightful but i'm also a great lover of fiction and i've just devoured the normal people and the the one that came before that which has been a big tv show in the uk on bbc i don't know if it's if it's hit your screens yet but it was brilliant uh, it's all about well it's called normal people but it's it's all quite dysfunctional their relationships it's kids growing up in Ireland and going to university and they're both fishes out of water at different stages in their career but they have this relationship and it's not normal it's fascinating so it's all that psychology stuff that I love Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely add those to the show notes. And I'm a huge Simon Sinek fan. Start with Wise, an amazing book. Leaders he last as well. And yeah, huge fan of him. So great call on that one. So if you could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed us to contact 20-year-old Allison, what would you tell her? Yeah, now that took me, that took me some thinking. Uh, and I realized it was the 20-year-old me was in even more of a hurry than the Allison now. I think I was quite like a bull in a china shop in a lot of my productions. I was just so ready to get going and rush ahead that I didn't take the time to build the relationships and get the buy-in that you need to take things off, get things off the ground. So I think I would go back and be like, okay, you don't have to do it quite so quickly. Get Become friends with the team. Get on with people. Get it going. It's not just like... You need to do the work at 100 miles an hour. So I think that for me is just slow down a bit. What's the best advice you have ever received? 
So it goes back to the place that I was at when I was like that 20 year old me. I was a little bit older than 20 because I'd graduated from uni, but my old boss and mentor, Ivan Randall, who gave me one of my first big opportunities in TV production, it was Ambulance Chasing, it was Blues and Twos, it was the fast of the real fly on the wall documentary series. And it was way before we had iPhones. We had like great big video recorders that we were trying to hide in police cars and on stretchers and all this kind of stuff. And when he hired me for the job, he was going to be, he'd seen that I was hungry, as I've said, and in a hurry and ready to go. And he saw some fire in the belly and he was like, right, you'll be great. And I'm going to really train you and mentor you. And I'm going to be right there for you every step of the way. But I'm going to let you step up into this big role. Um, this was just before Christmas break. And over the Christmas break, the MD of the production company resigned. He moved on and, my, and, and I even became the MD of the company. So he called me in on the first day and said, okay, so it's all changed a bit. You've still got the job. Don't worry about that. He said, but I've been booted upstairs. So I'm not going to be able to be as hands-on as I was planning to be. But you've got to promise me one thing. If something goes wrong and you need to come in and tell me that it's gone wrong, I'm not going to give you a barking, but I need to know that it's gone wrong. Because the only thing that can happen if you don't tell me is it's going to get worse. And, and I've always taken that to heart in terms of I've always gone to people when things have gone wrong. I've owned up to it. And I like to think that as a leader, as a freelancer, when I run teams, that I'm open to that and that I don't shout and scream. It's like, okay, how are we going to deal with it? Let's get it sorted. Then we'll deal with the inquest. So for me, that was really good advice. I like that advice as well. Just own up to the mistake, bring it to surface and solve it, get on with it. Way better idea than hiding it. Sorry, I know that the companies that I've worked in where something has gone wrong and I've just owned up to it because that's what I do. And then I get a huge bulking and I'm going, okay, right, you know, actually I don't need this. You know, that's how you're going to deal with that. That's not an environment that I want to work in. So I'm really clear, you know, actually I don't want to work in that way because you don't think in the same way that I do. I've just put my cards on the table. I've gone, okay, it went wrong. Things go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely those type of environments where you do get a barking at, where it's like, all right, this person needs to read some Simon Sinek. <laughs> so what motivates you? I, I just love putting people and ideas together and making things happen. You know, you said in the introduction, it's very much who I am. I transform creative ideas into reality. And it's putting that puzzle together, getting the right people, putting the project together, just making things happen, doing deals. That's what I get out of bed for. So what song do you have on repeat right now? I have Elton John, I'm Still Standing on Repeat, but it's not on my iTunes. It's my eight-year-old son who's playing it the whole time on the piano. It's it's an interesting interpretation because he plays the bits he knows really fast and the bits he doesn't know quite so well a bit slower. But yeah, it's Elton John, I'm Still Standing, that's my earworm. I think it's a great song for where we're at at the moment with coronavirus because, you know, I am just about still standing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely true. So where can people find your book? So... It's on Amazon, it's paperback, it's on Kindle, it's also on as an audiobook. I know it's on Audible. I don't, I'm not very good with the other audiobook platforms, but I'm pretty sure it's across most of them. And I got the opportunity to read it, which was really exciting and took me way beyond my comfort zone, even as an author. I'm like, you know, I like to be the producer behind the scenes. Suddenly I was the artist and the client, but I'm really proud to have done that and it was really good fun. So I'm curious, what is that process like? Are you just kind of reading from a teleprompter or how are you reading the book when you're, when um, you're doing it? So I was sitting in a little sound booth with a guy through a glass window 
with with the recording equipment i chose to do it on paper you can do it on like ipad or paper but it's not teleprompter but literally i got some really good prep notes from penguin who were fabulous and you know it really was you've got to read this out loud as practice so i literally the weirdest bit was the prep where i literally sat in my office and read it out loud to myself to just get into the feel and the flavor the book is is me it's my tone of voice and it was really so when when I was told they wanted to make it into an audiobook, it was really important that I put myself forward because I know it's me that comes across on the page. And I felt that I wanted to have a chance to try and show that I could read me rather than somebody else. And I needed that whole process of reading it out loud to work out how I was going to read it, how I was going to say it. I took some voice coaching from a friend of mine who's a voice artist who kindly kind of helped me with a bit and stuff. But you just get into the flow. And the opening was the hardest bit because actually the opening's the bit that's been really crafted. Because, you know, you go into a bookstore, you buy a book, you read the first two pages. So that was almost like less me in some ways, because it had been really carefully worked on to really draw people in, get the right messaging across. So actually those first couple of pages were the hardest bits to read. And then when I got into the flow and the longer form, if you like, then, you know, it was me and it was just, it was, it was exhausting, but it was lovely and great fun. And it was a great honor to have that opportunity. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. I've always wondered what it was like to record your own audiobook because I'm an avid audiobook listener. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. So you how can like people... the audiobooks that are read by the authors versus the ones that are read by actors? Because I think I do. Yeah, I find it more personal when the actual author reads their book because they're reading it the way they intended it to be heard and the message is being delivered in the way they want it to have it delivered. So... Yeah, I definitely prefer when the author reads it. Yeah, yeah no, no I, I like to ask people because I, I feel that way too, but I didn't know that I was just being really selfish. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good reasoning there. So how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? Cool. So I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn at Alison Grade. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Freelance Viable. And I have my website, alisongrade.com. You can buzz me a message there and all, all the social media links are there and you can buy the book there too. Allison, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you coming onto the show and, and sharing all this wonderful information and wisdom with us. Thank you so much. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to meet you. And thank you for having me on the show.